right. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. It is good to be with you. Glad to join you for worship together. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome. Man, it is, there is so much room in here. It feels so different being up front without those giant columns. Anyways, it's so glad to be with you. Um, so uh, excited to uh, continue working our way through our series in the book of 1 Corinthians together. And if you've been gone or you're just visiting for the first time, let me just catch you up briefly and we'll dive on into our study this morning. So uh, 1 Corinthians, as we've said, is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth. And, and it was a city, that, a church that he had actually helped plant, start, about five years prior to the writing of this letter. And, and so, uh, so he has this deeply invested interest in this church. He cares deeply about it. And what's important to understand about a little bit about the context of the city is that Corinth was a, a city that was incredibly wealthy and influential in large part because of its location. It was seated in a, in a location that kind of made it the de facto trade hub between Rome and the rest of the Mediterranean. And so it was a very wealthy and influential city because of that, but also it was a new city. Uh, Rome had conquered the city of Corinth, destroyed it, and then decided it was about time to rebuild it and resettle it with people loyal to Rome. And, and so uh, the city was full, mostly resettled with former army veterans and freed slaves. And so what you have in the city of Corinth is not only this incredibly wealthy and influential city, but a, but a city that's full of people who are making a new identity for themselves, who are, who are trying to make a name for themselves, who are, who are trying to build an identity for themselves. And that context is really important because, because there was this deeply aspirational and upwardly mobile mindset that consumed the culture in Corinth. You see, uh, everything in Corinth revolved around climbing the social and economic ladders of the day or maintaining your place at the top. It, is, it was the thing that everybody in Corinth was most concerned about. One commentator, he put it this way, he said, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. You see, Corinth was a place you went to make sure everything was about you, and that was the norm. That's, that's the way everything worked in Corinth. And sadly, tragically, we see that the church in Corinth was no exception. You read the letter, and what's so obvious, what's painfully obvious as you read, is that their, their highest priority, the thing that they care most about, is, is not God's glory. It's not, it's not the advancing of the gospel. The thing that they very clearly are most concerned about is their own glory and the advancing of their own social status in the world that they live in. And what we see throughout the letter is that that self-focused mindset, it was causing all kinds of problems in the church, specifically in the last couple of chapters. The last few weeks, we've been studying uh, this section in chapters 8 through eight through 10, and specifically in this section, what Paul is doing, he's dealing with how this self-centeredness was leading people in the church to exercise their personal freedoms with little to no regard for how that might actually be impacting other people, whether that was fellow believers in Christ or, or whether that was their non-Christian friends and neighbors in the city. You see, there were those in the Corinthian church who were using their freedom in Christ to engage in their culture in ways that, while in not in sinful in and of themselves, were actually having the effect of leading fellow brothers and sisters in Christ back into lives of, of idolatrous worship and sin. And also, they were causing their non-Christian neighbors to just infer that, that worshiping idols was fine, that it wasn't really a problem, and that it wasn't a big deal. Instead of being concerned about how the exercise of their freedoms was negatively impacting others, what they're most concerned about is getting their pastor to agree with them that they really do have the freedom to do whatever they want to do. 
And Paul, in his letter, he writes to them, and, and while he technically agrees with them that they technically are free to do this or that, he, he confronts their heart-level attitudes. He confronts this deep-seated self-centeredness that is in them, and he challenges them not to just ask what they are free to do, but instead to ask what they are free to give up for the good of others, for the sake of others. You see, the mark of Christian maturity isn't understanding and exercising your own rights and freedoms. It's being willing, even glad, to lay those things down for the good of others for the sake of others, that they might grow up in Jesus and then they might come to find and know him in the first place. You see, and we see this self-sacrificing, this, this, this willingness to lay aside your rights and your freedoms. We see that Paul modeled this for the Corinthians themselves, that he intentionally chose to give up, we saw last week, his, his right to even receive a paycheck for the work that he did as their pastor. And he did that, he said, so that nothing would get in the way of them being able to see and receive the good news of the gospel. What we saw at the end of the chapter 9 last week in our section is that that wasn't just a one-time thing that Paul did for the Corinthians. Instead, it was the very pattern of his life. That whoever he was trying to reach, whoever he was seeking to bring the gospel to, he would seek to understand how the exercising of his rights or his freedoms might actually get in the way of them hearing the gospel or following Jesus. And so he was glad, he was willing to lay down whatever rights or whatever freedoms might accidentally get in the way of people meeting Jesus. And that wasn't easy for Paul. It meant suffering for him. It meant financially suffering and socially suffering and even physically suffering sometimes. And that he was still willing to do whatever it took so that people might be won over to the good news of the gospel and might be set free from slavery to sin and slavery to the ideology of their culture and instead set free by the good news of the gospel. But as we saw last week, it wasn't just this desire to see people saved that motivated Paul it was a desire to participate in the gospel itself. We saw in verse 23 how, how the underlying desire to participate in the good news of the gospel itself was, was really driving his actions. You see, Paul didn't want to just merely be a recipient of the gospel. Uh, he wanted to be a participant in it. He didn't just want to, nor did he just want to tell other people about it. He wanted to embody the saving message of the gospel with his life and in so doing, to share in its blessings not just himself, but with others. As we wrap up our study in chapter 9 this morning, what we're going to see is that, is that Paul's calling the Corinthians this morning, what we're going to see is that he's calling them is that, to say that in order to live that kind of a life, in order to live a life that is characterized by a willingness to relinquish our rights and a willingness to lay down our freedoms and to live for God's glory and the good of others rather than ourselves, in order to be able to do that, it's going to require self-control. It's going to require self-control. And I realize that this is not New Year's, and so no one is interested in hearing about self-control uh, that interest level lasts for about a week, maybe a week and a half, right around the turn of the year. And after that, nobody wants to hear about it because you've all already given up on your resolutions long ago, right? But the reality that we see this morning is that self-control is so critically essential to what it looks like for us to be Jesus' people in the world but more than that, the kind of self-control that we're called to have and to be characterized by as God's people is not 
Uh, it's not a level of self-control that any amount of just mere willpower can bring about. And see, instead, what we're going to see this morning is that the kind of self-control that living as a witness for Christ requires, it only comes when we're driven by the pursuit of an eternal kind of prize. And so with that in mind, let's pray, and we'll dive into our passage this morning, see how God's word might encourage and challenge us. Jesus, thank you for our time together this morning, and thanks for the chance to get to study your word. And God, we just humbly come before you this morning and ask that you might be uh, empowering us to respond rightly to your word. God, that you might be enabling our time together around your word to be fruitful. God, and we just come to again say as we do every week, God, without you being at work in us, then our time together doesn't, it, there's, no, there's no way it's fruitful. God, we need, I need you to empower me, not just to teach what is true, but to have any kind of power and authority to do it with. And Jesus, we need you to enable us to not only hear what your word has to say, but to be willing to submit ourselves to it. And so, God, we come to you as we do every week, desperately needing you to be correcting and empowering and shaping not just our time together, but our very lives. And so we ask that you would indeed do that again this morning as we gather, God, for our good, for the salvation of our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, and more than anything, Jesus, so that you might be worshiped and glorified in us, by us, and through us in the world. And so we ask all that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, we're going to be wrapping up 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. Uh, just a few short verses. Uh, verse 24, we're going to begin. Paul writes this. He says, Do you not know that in a race all of the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. For everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. And they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, instead I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, uh, this passage this morning, short and sweet, uh, it's a pretty well-known one. It's usually, in fact, it's usually talk, often used to talk about the way that we need to be characterized by self-control if we're going to, in order to run the race of the Christian life. And, and that is certainly true. If you remember just a few months back, we were working our way through the fruit of the Spirit and we saw how the, the fruit of self-control is actually a, an instrumental virtue. It means that it's, it's foundational to the, to the development of all kinds of other areas of growth in our own life. It's like one of the foundational kinds of rocks. But that's not the point that Paul is making specifically in this passage. He's not just talking about the need for self-control in our lives in general. Instead, his emphasis here is on how self-control is an instrumental part of our witness for Christ in the world. And to get across this point, he uses the metaphor of an athlete, specifically a runner. Now, I am very clearly not a runner, right? In fact, I don't really know much about running. I know the term turnover or something like that. I don't know. It's, I don't know. My wife runs. Anyways, the only thing I really know is that you have to be a little bit insane to choose to run if you are not being chased, right? Like, there's just, I don't understand it, okay? But the Corinthians would have known all about running. 
They would have known all about races. It would have been really important to them. You see, Corinth was home to the Itzmian Games. It was a massive sporting event, second only in size and in scope and significance to the Olympic Games themselves. And the Corinthians, they loved these games. One commentator writes, they loved them so much that that was often said that the masses demanded only two things. They wanted food and they wanted games. And so the Corinthians would have absolutely known when Paul's using this analogy of an athlete and of a runner, it would have been an analogy that hit home for them. You see, and there's so much we can learn from this analogy that Paul uses here about the role of self-control and the role that it plays in the life of a Christian who is seeking to participate in the gospel and to live as a witness for Christ. And the first thing that we see this morning is simply the, the necessity of self-control. The necessity of it. You see, in verse 27, Paul talks about how one of the reasons that self-control is so essential to our witness is because you don't want the way that you live to actually undermine the message that you proclaim about Jesus and the gospel. He writes in verse 27, he says, I strike a blow to my body, I make it my slave. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but here at the end he says, so that after I have preached to others, I myself won't be disqualified for the prize. That word uh, translated as disqualified there, what it literally means is to be proven false or to be proven counterfeit. You see, what happened all the time in Paul's day is that, is that these orators would come into the city and would preach all kinds of different teachings and about virtuous living and all these different kinds of things. But what happened is oftentimes is that they would live in private in a way that was in radical contrast to everything they talked about. And so eventually they would just be disregarded. Their hypocritical life, it would discredit them. It would disqualify them. From, from anyone even listening to them. And so eventually they would be ignored altogether. You see, the reality is that, and this is not new information, the reality is that your actions, they always speak louder than your words. And it's not that words don't matter, but that they, but they don't matter when they're at odds with what your actions actually say. I'll never forget in college, uh, I feel like God had really put a friend of mine on my heart, and I'd been praying for months about an opportunity to, to share my faith with my friend, and we had spent countless nights playing video games together and eating pizza and just talking about life, and, and I remember after one evening when God had just opened this incredible door for me to talk about my faith with my friend, I remember at the end of our conversation, coming to a close, my friend Cody just, he said to me, he said, I felt like I could trust you. I felt like I could actually talk to you about these kinds of things. He said, because you're the first Christian I've ever met that the way that they lived and what they said seemed like it matched up. I will, I will never forget how, how poignant that was for me. You see, people aren't dumb. People aren't dumb. They see the way that you live. They see what is important to you. They see the things that matter to you. They see the things that you spend your time and your money and your effort and your energy on. And they see those kinds of things. And they understand that what you say and what you do don't always match. And if those things don't match up, then they just discredit you. And I'll just add this. I need you to hear this. Parents, your kids do the same thing. Parents, your kids can see that, the dif- that there is a difference between what you say 
and what you do. They can see that there is a difference or when there is a difference between the way that you talk about how important Jesus is and yet the things you give your time and your energy and your priorities to. And they see the way that you talk about how important Jesus is and how that might not match with the way that your life is actually lived. And if you proclaim Jesus with your mouths, whether to your kids or to your friends or whoever it might be, and what you live as as though something else is altogether more important, then what happens is you radically undermine everything you have to say about what Jesus is really like and who he really is. And I do, please, I just need you to hear that. I do not say that as a way to shame you or guilt you in any way. But I do say that as a way to encourage you to examine your own heart and to examine your life and to not just ask, what am I, what am I showing, what am I telling my friends, what am I telling my kids about Jesus? But ask the question, what am I showing them with my life? Because the reality is, is that if our life doesn't match with our words, then what we're going to do is going to disqualify our words altogether. We're going to discredit ourselves. You see, but it's not just so that you don't disqualify or discredit yourself in the end. You see, you need self-control in order to enter the race in the first place. Verse 25, Paul writes about this. He says, everyone who competes in the games, he says, they go into strict training. Now, it wasn't just the fans of the Isthmian games that were really committed to it. It was the athletes as well. You see, competitors, they had to prove, they were required to to offer proof that they had trained for at least 10 months prior to the games and that they had been confined to the gym for the 30 days prior to the running of the events of themselves. It It was serious, right? And like I said, I am not an athlete by any stretch of the imagination. I got cut from every single sports team I ever tried out for, right? And I have a feeling that probably had something to do with the fact that I was never really that interested in practicing, right? I love to play, but I was never really that interested in practicing. And the reality is that if you want to compete at a high level, then you need to practice. You need to train, despite what Allen Iverson might have said, right? Some of you got that, right? I appreciate that, right? See, training, it inherently requires discipline and self-control. You see, if you want to run in the Olympics, you you have to be disciplined to run every single day, right? It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what the weather is like. It doesn't really matter if you want to do it or if you don't want to do it. If you want to run in the Olympics, you have to do it every day. But it's not just running every day that you need to be disciplined to. It's it's also that you have to have self-control in all kinds of areas of your life, right? You have to be disciplined to lift weights every day and to eat the right stuff every day and to go to bed on time every day, right? It's an all-of-life kind of discipline. And that phrase that's translated there as strict training in the passage, verse 25, what it literally means is is it says, in all things self-rule. See, what Paul is saying is that what everybody knows is that athletes have to exert a self-control or a self-rule, not just in their athletic training, but in all the areas of their life if they want to compete in the games. 
I remember watching the Olympics one summer, uh, and uh, it was like in the middle of all the Michael Phelps craziness when he was winning like a bajillion gold medals or whatever it was. And, and I remember them talking about his training regimen, right? And the, the dude would literally spend five or six hours every single day in the pool. He swam a minimum of 80,000 meters a week. That's over 50 miles every week the dude swam. Swimming is so slow, right? That's like forever it takes to do that. At one point, he trained in the water for 1,800 consecutive days without a day off. That's almost five years of every single day being in the pool. That's in addition to all the weightlifting and strength training, not to mention he had to eat a 12,000-calorie diet. Do you know how much food you have to eat if it's healthy food to get to 12,000 calories? I don't know either, but it's a huge amount, right? It's like six pizzas or 47,000 bowls of rice, right? I don't know, right? See, but what Paul is saying is that, that if we want to live lives that proclaim Jesus so that people that don't know him yet might be able to see and receive the good news of the gospel, then it is going to require the kind of all-encompassing self-control that an Olympic-level athlete has. It's going to require that not just some parts of our lives are submitted to Jesus and his authority, but that all of our lives are committed like the athletes who need to commit themselves to competing in the games. Paul says it's that kind of discipline, an all-encompassing kind of self-discipline that we're going to need if we're going to lead people towards Jesus and, and proclaim him. And that's going to mean that not only that we have to say yes to Jesus in all kinds of ways, but it's going to mean that we're going to have to say no to all kinds of other things. That brings us to the second thing that we see in our passage about self-control, and it's just the cost of it, the price of self-control. You see, training so that you can, can compete not only means spending months and years exercising incredible discipline and self-control and in doing the things that you need to do, it also means saying no to all kinds of things that you might otherwise be free to do. It means saying no to all kinds of other relationships that you otherwise might be free to have. It means saying no to all kinds of food you might otherwise be free to eat. And it also means saying no to ourselves and our own desires, which are often at odds with Jesus' desires for us. You see, that's what Paul's talking about at the end of verse 27 there. He says, he says that he strikes a blow to his body and he makes it his slave. Literally, he, he says that he gives himself a black eye. And what he's not saying is that his body is evil, right? That's not a Christian position. Remember, we just, when we spent a couple weeks in chapter 15, we talked about the inherent goodness of a, the bodily resurrection. And so Paul's not saying that your body is the problem. But instead, what he is saying is that his desires need to be controlled. They need to be forced to submit and to surrender to Jesus and to his purposes instead of his own. One commentator puts it this way, he says, Paul recognizes the need to beat his body out of its all-too-ready obedience to sin in order that it might be brought into the service of God. He says, the body is not evil, but it must be made to serve the right master and not the wrong one. You see, that kind of thinking is at odds with everything our world and the Corinthian world believed. 
You see, like us, the Corinthians lived in a culture which fundamentally believed that the only way you were really free is when you were absolutely unhindered from being able to express yourself in whatever way you wanted, when you were totally free to be able to fulfill whatever desires you felt like you had. And yet Paul is saying emphatically just the opposite. He's saying that for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus who wants to live for the glory of God and seek to be a witness for Christ in the world, that our bodies, that our desires, they must be controlled, that our desires are often at odds with God's ways and his purposes. And and so what we need to do is take whatever steps are necessary to bring every part of our lives into submission to him instead of ourselves. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter, uh, chapter 6 and verse 19. He says, he tells the, he was writing to the Romans, he says, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, he says, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. You see, doing that is hard. It is often inconvenient. I remember just speaking with a friend this week and they were talking about how for them it was uh, important not to be on social media, not because that was wrong, but for them they understood it was a place of, that it was just not going to be a healthy place for them. And that was really inconvenient to do that. It was really difficult to do that, but it was a priority that they needed to take because what it meant is that it was for them following Jesus and loving him and loving their family was that having those things was going to get in the way of it for them. So they were willing to cut that out so that they might love and follow and serve Jesus. That is wildly inconvenient. It's difficult. In fact, it can often feel agonizing, right? That word in verse 25 that's, that's translated as compete. Everybody wants to compete in the games. It's the, it's the same root word that we get the, the English word agony from, right? You got to love that, right? Because it means, you see, following Jesus is hard and it requires all kinds of sacrifice, Some are harder than others. It means saying yes to his ways and his purposes instead of our own, even when it's inconvenient and even when it hurts and even when it costs us financially or relationally or socially. So the question is, how how do you get that kind of self-control? How do you get to the spot where you are willing to, to, to give up things that are difficult? What, what, is, what makes you willing to pay that kind of price to compete in the games, as Paul says? How do you choose to say no to yourself and say yes to Jesus so that other people might do the same, not just once, but every day? How do you get to that point? See, that brings us to the last thing I want to show you about self-control in the passage, and, and it's simply this. It's the source of it. Verse 25, Paul says it this way. The Corinthian runners, they, they submitted themselves to strict training and to sacrifice and all those kinds of things, and they did it, he says, to get a crown. You see, they weren't just training for a year and then quarantining for the last 30 days just for the fun of it. They, they weren't just saying no to all kinds of other things just to say that they did it for some reason. They, they weren't just running to get some fresh air. They were after a prize. You see, it's not that they didn't want to eat whatever they wanted to eat. It's not that they didn't want to do whatever they wanted to do. And it's not that they didn't want to be with whoever they wanted to be with. It's that they wanted something else more. They wanted the prize. And so they were willing to do anything to have it. You see, what Paul's pointing out here is so profound, and you cannot miss this. He's saying that self-control is not just a matter of knowing what is right or wrong. 
Self-control is, is not just a matter of knowing what you need to do. It's not a matter of the head. He's saying that self-control is fundamentally a matter of the heart. You see, self-control is, is about what you love. You see, my son Caleb, he loves playing video games with me. The kid loves it. We've been playing uh, Lego Marvel Avengers. It's incredible, right? Just, just loves it, right? And he will do just about anything in order to get the chance to do that with me, right? Or he will not do just about anything, right? Like that is this reward. It is a prize for him that he is worth doing just about anything to get. Why? Because he loves it. He loves it. It is a joy for him. You should see the kid's face. He thinks it is the greatest thing to transform into Iron Man and blow up the Lego world, right? Like it is just, it is a joy for him to do. And he loves it. And so he is, he is willing, he is motivated to give up just about everything else to do that thing. Famous Puritan preacher Thomas Chalmers, he referred to things like that as the expulsive power of a new affection. In a sermon that I often quote, maybe you're getting tired of me quoting this dude, but he essentially says this. He says, we only cease to be the slave of one desire because another has brought it into subordination. He says, the heart's desire for one particular thing may be conquered, but its desire to have something is unconquerable. He goes on, he says, neither you nor anyone else can dispossess the heart of an old affection. The heart is not so constituted, so the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. You see, what he's trying to say is that the only way that we'll ever be characterized by being self-controlled, by, by being characterized by a Christ-exalting self-control, is that when you love him more than you love anything else, what when you want the most is him more than anything else. You see, when he is not merely the means to a personal end, but when he is the end itself, when he is the prize, when he's the thing to be enjoyed, when he's the thing you long for most. You see, and what that, the only way that that happens is when you see that Jesus ran the race he's calling you to run himself. And he did it for you. See, Jesus was a runner. He left heaven and he came to earth and he became a human being and he ran the race of being a human being and he ran it all the way to the cross and he endured and he, and he never gave up. And Jesus loved God with all his heart and his soul and his mind and he loved his neighbor as himself and, and he did all the things that you and I are supposed to do but do not do. He lived a life of perfect self-control you see, Jesus, the only being who ever ran the race and who deserved the crown that was at the end of it. You see, you and I, we are all disqualified. We all disqualify ourselves. The only crown that we deserve is one of thorns, and yet what we see is that on the cross is Jesus. Instead of being crowned with glory and life as he deserved to be, he takes on the crown of thorns that we deserve so that we might wear the crown of life that he has earned. We were disqualified, and yet he runs the race for us and gives us his crown. You see, it's only when you see that and keep coming back to that good news that you will be increasingly characterized by his self-control, because what will happen is that you will love him more than you love anything. 
See, keeping on coming back to the gospel, it produces in you a love that overwhelms all of the other loves. And so just like the athletes who long to win a prize, who are driven because that's the thing they want most. What happens is that as followers of Jesus, we're driven because what we want most is Jesus and to be with him and to be like him. What happens is you become increasingly characterized by self-control because like an athlete, you're driven to win a prize and you too are driven, but not by the desire to earn a prize, but because you have already been given the prize you could not earn on your own. And here's the thing, is that when that's the thing that captivates your heart, when that's the good news that captures your affections, not only will you be longing to give yourself to it, but instead you will, but also you will want to share that with others. You'll want others to participate in that joy with you. You will want others to be a part of it with you, and so you'll be willing to give up whatever it takes. Not only so that you might be able to enjoy the good news of the gospel, so that others might enjoy it with you, not just now, but for eternity. See, the reality is that when we are not characterized by self-control, instead we are consumed by all kinds of other desires in our life, what it reveals is not just a lack of willpower, it reveals a lack of love. So the invitation, the solution is not that we might just try harder that we might ask Jesus to captivate our hearts and to overwhelm our affections so that what we love most is him. What we long for most is him and for others to know and be with him both now and forever. See, and that's what we're remembering every week when we come back and take communion remembering all that Jesus did for us, remembering his body and his blood, which is broken and shed for us so that we might get the crown that he won for us. In communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. It says a chance for you to remember, to remember his love for you displayed by giving himself completely for you so that you might know him and be with him both now and forever. And what happens is when you keep coming back to that reality and you keep setting your heart and your affection on all that Jesus has done for you, then you will increasingly inevitably be characterized by a life of self-control, of, of worship unto him. So as we sing and as we worship and as you remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus, if you realize that he has won the crown that you long for and given it to you, then take communion. Do it as a remembrance of all that he has done for you. Do it as a remembrance that he is the prize. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if not, if you're here this morning and you don't really understand why Jesus would even be a prize worth running after, or you're still figuring out if you want to run after him at all in the first place, I want to encourage you. You are so welcome in this community. And you are welcome here in this church and your doubts are welcome here and your questions are welcome here. And I hope what you see in this body of believers is a community of people who love Jesus more than we love anything else. But communion is about celebrating him. And so I'd encourage you, receive him first before you take communion. He is what you need. And as we sing, as we take communion, I'd encourage you.
Talk with God. Where is he challenging your heart this morning? Ask him to reveal to you the things that are driving your actions, the things that control your life. Ask him to show you the things that you love more than anything else, the supreme loves. And ask him as well that he might captivate your heart with his love for you so that out of joy you would give yourself back to him in every way, every day. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful, Jesus, that you are indeed the prize worth giving up everything to have. God, that you, you don't spoil and you don't fade, but the inheritance that we have in relationship with you, Jesus, lasts forever. And it is worth giving up anything. It is worth saying no to anything. It is worth saying yes to anything you asked us to do and no to anything you command us not to. It's worth it, Jesus. And so help us, Jesus, not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of duty, not out of obligation, but instead out of love for you. Out of a love that is captivated by you to give our lives to you. God, to submit ourselves in every way, not just in some parts, but in every corner of our lives to submit ourselves to you and to be characterized by a life of self-control that ultimately is about worship to you. And we ask that you'd help us to do that, Jesus, not just so that we might enjoy you as the prize, but so that our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and those that don't know you yet might see you as the prize, the one prize that lasts. So Jesus, God, help us not to live for now, but to live for eternity, that we might have the joy of being with you and that we might have the joy of worshiping you with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers who don't know you yet. Jesus, that's worth giving everything for. Cause us to see that as true and to give ourselves towards that ends. We pray, amen.